The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Um, so when she was just asking me to come and, and do this, she's like, you know, in the past with the Genesis Bible study, it's like we'd come and we'd discuss and then... Uh, um, you know, the girl who was in my mind who just left, walked out the door, Jen Wilkin. Um, she's like, then Jen Wilkin would pop that in and Jen, Jen would teach. Um, well, I apologize for the downgrade. I'm no Jen Wilkin. Um, but uh, what we're going to do is try to flow in that format is what, what Mallory asked us to do was to come discuss, but then also just try to have a time of just teaching and to work through these things. So um, some of the parts I'm going to be touching on, on tonight, you can, we've already just discussed, especially what you you just touched on, uh, Bobby G. And that is, I think, a big point to Psalm 16, um, is this idea of uh, King David being able to say uh, that this Yahweh, Adonai, El, um, he's the one holding my lot. Um, I, my argument is going to be that's him saying he's the one who basically holds the days in my hand. He's the one who establishes my paths. Like the stuff in my life isn't happenstance. The stuff in my life is there because like God wants it to be there. And then he's like, but he's still able to say the lines have fallen for me. And that's just another way of saying the lot, the days are in, my days are in your hands. The lines of my life, the lot of my life that you've allotted to me, they've fallen in pleasant places, he's able to say still. Indeed, he's able to say, I have a beautiful inheritance, this inheritance of the allotment of my days that you've decided for me, God. And if you think about King David, uh, not everything was rosy, right? But he's still able to say, say these things. And that's, uh, I heard you picking up and swimming in that stream, and I think that's going to be a big deal, Bobby Jean there. So um, here's what we're going to do. Uh, let's just start off by thinking on some of these, these questions here, just in, in your mind. Um, I'm also, I think, in a way, a guinea pig. I'm trying to set the example for some of um, the ladies. I'm sure they'll be able to eclipse my example rather well. Um, you're going to have some um, phenomenal women who are very capable of being able to teach the Bible to you. So um, I'm trying to strike the balance between this being semi-sermonic slash teachy, okay? And so the jury's still still out. We can wait to see how that goes um, here at the end. So just starting off with just this idea, like when you wrap your mind around Psalm 16, uh, if you were to come at it with these questions, and I'm sure you've heard these before, maybe you've wrestled with them before, what is the meaning of life? Right? We've wrestled with that question before. What's the point of my life? Or perhaps the more pertinent question that you guys have wrestled with um, as um, image bearers of God, you guys are daughters, you're somebody's daughter, right? Um, you are, some of us here are wives, some of us here are mommies, and so when you think about those realities that define your life, maybe you're just a woman who has relationships and friendships, the question can be just where is true joy found in this life? Right? Where is true joy found in this life? Because we all know that um, if you are a wife, um, there's things in your life that want to suck joy out. It usually starts with the letter H and ends with husband sometimes, right? Uh, there's things about being a mommy that wants to suck joy out of life. There's things about being a daughter, somebody's daughter that can suck joy out of life. Man, just being a, someone's friend 
can suck joy out of life. And so we ask the question, where is true joy found in this life? So for most of us, those questions aren't always on the forefront of our mind. Like maybe when we're laying our head down on the pillow at night and you're about to slip off into the deep stages of anesthesia, right? Those things start flashing through your mind, but then they're gone and then you're just out. But in some of those more clear moments of life, what happens is like the gravity of just those questions, like what is the point of my life? And like, how do you just find joy? Like, right, I want joy. I think what's going on here in Psalm 16 is God in his goodness is loving us enough to give us a man who's also wrestled with these same kind of questions and as Mallory has touched on, carried along by the Holy Spirit, is going to say, I've wrestled with some of this stuff and David is a poet and he's going to do what a poet does. He's going to write a song about, about his thoughts on this idea of joy in life. Where is true joy found? What's the point of my life? What's the meaning of life? Um, because I think King David, like us, has all wrestled, right, um, with this idea that if I can go through life recognizing that I'm a mommy, that I'm a wife, that I'm a friend, that I'm part of a family or whatever it is, and I can figure out what that meaning is, it's, 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 it's a win. But like the bonus fry at the end of the day, I think for David is like, what does it look like to have joy in the midst of all these things? And so when you turn to Psalm 16, I think that's just exactly what he is, he is wrestling with. And so here's what I think the main idea is that's going on in, in Psalm 16. And really, it's just going to be broken down into three different chunks. And I'm just going to give you three chunks strung, strung together, like giving you the main idea of what's going on in, in Psalm 16, okay? So David is going to say this. Listen, when you know that the Lord is my Lord, because he's going to say that there in verse 2. We're going to talk about what Lord, Lord means there, right? That's verses 1 through 4. He's like, listen, when you know that the Lord God is, is your Lord, is my Lord, and when you know, verses 5 through 8, that he is my sustenance, I think that's the big idea in verses 5 through 8, when he says the Lord is my chosen portion in my cup, that's like food language, that's sustenance language. Where do you get your nourishment from? And he's like, man, I'm getting my nourishment from Yahweh. Okay, so he's going to say, when you know that the Lord is my Lord, verses 1 through 4, that he is my sustenance, verses 5 through 8, here's the result, fullness of joy forevermore. Okay, that's how the, like, ver, uh, chapter 16 all strings together, right? This is the path of life as God has designed it to be. And you can see that language also there at the at the very end, verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. So I think what David is saying is, listen, man, I've thought on these questions, sisters. I have the same stuff hitting me and my head's on my pillow in my, in, my, uh, in, my, uh, in my building, in my house. I've wrestled with these, and here's what I'm going to lay out before you. God carries along. King um, Peter says he's a prophet. King David's a prophet, so here's a prophet speaking on the behalf of God, wrestling with these questions about what the path of life looks like that leads to genuine fullness of joy, great old school word, forevermore, okay? And so what we're going to do is we're going to dice up this psalm into three, and I just gave them, gave them to you, right? So the first sort of like big idea is this, is just King David going to say, my Lord is my Lord, all right? And so we need to chew on what those, what those ideas mean. Right, so the, the opening verse begins with a statement of the psalmist's relationship to God. Right? Verses 1 through 4 is all about David saying, I have a relationship with this one who's known as God, this one who's known as the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, who happens to also just be my Lord, capital L, 
lowercase rest of the letters, all right? So it's just straight up relationship language that he's going to use. And so notice that the essence of David's relationship can be seen in the, the names that he uses for God. Um, Nielsen, I think, in that book touched on these, right? So you see that the first word he uses there in verse 1, preserve me, O God. The Hebrew there is El, E-L, all right? It's just translated God in verse 1. It's like the most common name used for God in the Old Testament, this L word. And it signifies exactly what Mallory said. It's the idea that God is the creator. Um, He's the mighty one. Wrapped up with God being a creator is this idea he's got the power to get stuff done, okay? And so as the mighty one, David knows this God who created everything out of nothing. So what you're supposed to do when you bump into just that G-O-D, that L language in the Psalms and the Old Testament, it's supposed to make you go flying all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, where you just see God with absolutely nothing speaking and by his power just making things appear. He's creating everything out of nothing, okay? And so David is saying it's this mighty one, It's this God who's created everything out of nothing. He has the strength to, what are the two things there? Preserve me. And he has the power to be that safe place so that I would have a place of refuge. And then notice he rolls right into verse 2 there, and he says the second name for Yahweh I want you guys to show on, or the second name for God I want you to show on is Yahweh. That's what that capital L-O-R-D is. So whenever you see that in the Bible, that's not a misprint, like, right, you guys probably know this. Like, that's actually signifying the name that was revealed from God himself back in the whole Exodus chapter 3 scenario. Do you guys remember that? Moses in the burning bush. God's like, you're going to go free some people, and you're going to pull my people out of bondage and slavery. And he's like, man, if I'm going to show up, man, like, I need to show up with, like, a name. They're going to be asking me, like, who in the world gave you the right to show up and talk about this stuff? And uh, Moses is like, I need you to tell me who you are. What is your name? And that's where you get the I am, who I am, the great I am. And in the Hebrew, the way they would write that out is Y-H-W-H. And what they're driving at is that name Yahweh. And so what David is confessing is that Yahweh is the source of every good thing that happens to him. Yahweh, in Exodus 3, he's saying, I am the covenant God. I am the one who's going to rescue you. I am the one who's created everything. And David's saying, man, it's good when you realize that El is Yahweh, when the creator one is the covenant one. Because when you realize that El is Yahweh, what you're going to soon recognize is that the source of every good thing that happens to him comes from him. I have no good apart from you. And I like what you said there, Patty, um, a while ago. I think you zoomed in on that phrase. It's that frame of mind that begins to be massaged in and formed into the reality that he is genuinely the source of everything in my life because he's the creator Like, the only reason I'm even here is because he created me, and now here he is as the covenant one sustaining me, okay? So you have that language of El, that's God. You have that language of Yahweh, all caps, L-O-R-D. But then what you also uh, see is this, is that it's that language of um, Adonai, okay? So think on this here real quick before we get to that Adonai language, Um, when you begin to realize that El is also Yahweh, 
I think what David is doing is really spreading out that banner over the rest of the verses. And what he's beginning to say is, listen, the path of life that I'm about to lay out for you here later, like if you go all the way to the beginning, it starts. Like he's the cornerstone of all these things, okay? So to know God, the creator is Yahweh, the Lord is to know that he alone is your greatest good. So, right, if you want to begin to apply that as what that begins to look like, it's this. Like if you have an outstanding husband... Um, as a wife, if you have the perfect children, right, as a mother, something that you might desire or strive for in your mind, or maybe you have the best mother and father a daughter could actually ever hope for, maybe you've got the best friends in the world, the greatest co-workers, and these are the things that are in your life, but what David is saying, but if you don't have El, if you don't have Yahweh at the cornerstone of all things, even the best things of this life will ultimately be valueless. Okay, that's what he's driving at there with that I have no good apart from you because then what you do is you begin to reorient things in your life instead of perfect children, phenomenal husband, great friends, whatever it might be being at the center. What you have now is God at the center and he's now able to say through the lens of my creator Yahweh, I can genuinely see that as this stuff works itself out in my life, he genuinely is the one from whom all good things flow, all right? If you go into the New Testament, if you just want a New Testament idea that echoes this, just to give it to you, and you can look it up later for homework, is James 1.17, okay? Go chew it on James 1.17. You'll see that James, the brother of Jesus, picks right up on this exact same idea, okay? So you see, to know God intimately by name, David is saying, means that nothing hereafter can ever mean as much to us as God does and that's because Yahweh is also our Adonai. Again, in the journal there, she says that idea of Adonai is that master language, all right? So that's the third name that he uses in like a sentence, right? Two sentences. Preserve me, O God, El, I say to you, Yahweh, you are my Adonai. And so it's just like following a progression almost. Like if you're circling stuff and you draw in your Bible, like right, you can circle L and then put an arrow down the Lord and then you can circle and put an arrow down to capital L-O-R-D because I think there's a progression going. He's like, he's my creator. What? He's in covenant relationship with me? Well, of course he's my master and I'm going to do what he tells me to do. Right? You see how it's sort of like trickling down, down the line there? So this is the third name for God, Adonai. It's translated capital L-O-R-D in the first part of verse 2. And for Yahweh to also be our Adonai is for, that, for him to be, to be our master. That is, God is not only the mighty one, El, in whom we can take refuge, but he's also the one who has the right to order and direct our life. It's a conversation that you and I had, Shelby, a couple of weeks ago. We were like the whole Jesus is Lord kind of thing. You see this mirrored in the New Testament when it's Jesus is Savior and Lord. That Savior idea mirrors the God, L idea. Because just as God, L is the one with power and might to save people, create things, new life, Jesus is the Savior who has the power to create new things. And just as this Yahweh is the Adonai, the Master, Jesus is the Master. He's the Lord. And when He calls us to Himself and He saves us, guess what? We've got a new Master, the one to whom we are going to obey. And if you bring the language of Psalm 16 forward, it's like, man, Jesus, of course he preserves me. Of course I'm going to take refuge in him. Of course I've got no good thing apart from my Lord and Savior, 
Jesus Christ, okay? And so look down at verses 3 and 4 here because what he does is interesting as he rounds the corner. And I think there's a connection there, right? So it's sort of like he's going like, here's my relationship with God, guys. It's with El, Yahweh, Adonai. And to know God intimately by name in these ways means that all else that's going to flow out, since God is the one by whom David measures all things, it's sort of like he's the measuring line. It follows that the immediate result of his relationships with others are going to have an effect because of his relationship with God. So right here he is in verses 1 and 2 going, here's my relationship with God. And then he's like, because my relationship is this, it has an effect on my horizontal relationships. That's what's going on in verses 3 and 4. David says, all my delight is in the excellent ones, the saints in the land. He found pleasure in his relationship with God's people So he's standing there going, the Lord is my Lord. Yahweh is my Adonai. Then he begins to look around and go, Yahweh is your Adonai too? Then he's like, man, I I love that. Yahweh is your Adonai too? And he's recognizing there's a kindred knitting of hearts that happens between people who have this kind of relationship with God. Our horizontal relationships, you want to put it this way, are built upon those vertical relationships relationships, okay? So I just said this, he found pleasure in his relationship with God's people, and that's in contrast, though, verse 4, to those who run after another God. You see, those who love the Lord will love the company of those who also love the Lord. I think that's what he's driving at here, but you've got to be careful not to, to abuse what's going on in verse 4, right? So that what this doesn't mean is that you abandon your relationships with people who don't love the Lord. I don't think he's implying that. Because if, he, if that is what verse 4 means is, hey, the excellent ones, the saints in the land, they're my delight. I want to be around them. But you know there's those who run after other gods who are just multiplying sorrow all over the place. You don't really want to be around those folk. It's like, I just don't know where he's going to go. Like, right? I don't think this is a call to, like, monkery, to be a nun, to some sort of aesthetic life to try to get away from everybody who's not following the Lord. I just don't know how you would even accomplish that. But what I do think he's driving at is this, is we ought to distance ourselves from that which defines godless pursuit. Verse 4, if you just want to write something in the margins, it's this. It's this idea of pursuit. What are you running after? Okay, you see that there. The sorrows of those who run after other gods, who run after those drink offerings of blood, most commentators will say that that idea of drink offerings of blood, that's, the, that's cultish kind of things. This isn't like sacrificial language of like Leviticus and that kind of stuff. It's actually like, they're like part of their religion was like they're drinking cups of blood in worship to this false god. And he's like, I'm not going to, to link up the pursuit of my life on this path with those who are running after pursuits that are just totally foreign to the pursuits and the loves of Yahweh, Adonai. So in other words, your pursuits are just going to look different than the pursuits of those who don't see God as the sole source of all good things. And so it just prompts the question, right? I mean, with any, anything that you're sitting there studying and trying to chew on, um, is this, you bring it home, is does God's goodness shown to you result in your delight in others who have been shown that exact same goodness? Or another way you can just put it is this, do you love other Christians, right? Do you find it good and rewarding to be with them? Do you seek their company? 
And again, this isn't an emphasis from David saying, have no unbelieving friends, but when you're hanging around with those whose pursuit is running after things that are not of God, when they look at your life, I think the implication is they should be able to look and go, man, your pursuits are just a little bit different than mine. And what's the deal with that? Like you used to be pursuing this stuff with me, and now you're not pursuing that stuff with me. Because you're over here hanging out with the excellent ones. Like, right, that's what they're going to say. It's like the excellent ones, the saints in the land. You hold, like, right, Holy Joe over there, like, when your life's changed. But I think Dave's over here going, like, yeah, like, that's where I want to be around because we're now, we're now like-minded in our pursuit of Yahweh, Adonai, the creator, the master, okay? So on the f- path of life, verse 11 language, we see, I think, that first step is him saying this. It's that first step to recognizing that Yahweh is your Adonai. Yahweh is your Adonai. The Lord God, the great I am, is your master. And I think the second is this. You roll into verses 5 and 8. It's that language he picks back up, my Lord, but now he's going to say is my Lord is my sustenance. So you're pursuing joy. What does that look like? He's like, man, you pursue the God who created you. Second thing is you pursue the Lord who sustains you. You pursue the Lord who sustains you. Verses 5 and 8 are all about the blessings that come from David's relationship with God. And you guys were picking up on them. Like, Notice that the, the my, it word M-Y, something is just popping all over the place. Verse 5, the Lord is my chosen portion. The Lord is my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me. I, I have a beautiful inheritance. The Lord who gives me counsel. And the night also my heart instructs me. I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Like, right? It's just over and over. It's just sort of like this overwhelming response of, um, wow, the Yahweh is my Adonai and he just sustains me. And this sustenance is producing a bountiful blessing in my life. And I'm pulling that sustenance language from there in verse 5. I told you guys a little while ago that portion language. That cup language, that's like nourishment language, okay? So he's saying this, the Lord is our sustenance, our real treasure portion, our real pleasure cup. They're to be found in him because he's the fount from whom all blessings flow. And so in the sense that David is, when you read these verses, is he's just overwhelmed with the sufficiency of Yahweh's sustenance for his life like you don't see him issuing a complaint here he's not like man like god is like a great at a b and c but he's just not really cutting it over here in d e f and g he's over here saying man i am overwhelmed with the sufficiency of yahweh's sustenance listen my lot in life is in his hands the circumstances of my days are known by the greater I am. I'm not adrift on a sea of meaninglessness when these circumstances come my way. Rather, my life is shot through with meaning because Yahweh is holding and ordering, end of verse, end of verse 5, my lot. The language and the idea behind that little phrase, my lot, it's like sort of my lot in life. My life's not someone else's life. What God has apportioned to me is not what God has apportioned to you. Psalm 31, 15, David picks right back on that same language. He says, my times are in your hands. That's what he's meaning by that lot language there. So think about this. Isn't it interesting that David is content with what God has dealt out to him? If you just go read through like the Samuels, 
And you begin to see very quickly that David's life wasn't like high fives and puppy dogs, you know, rainbows, lollipops, and just good times, right? It just, that's not the way his life was. Yet what he says is this, the allotment of my times that are in Yahweh's hands that he has dealt to me, these lines, he says, this allotment has, that's fallen to me, it's sort of that language like picking, right? Did you guys ever do this as little kids? Like you, you go snap a bunch of twigs and you've got to pick someone who's going to go first. It's drawing the short straw, right? That's sort of like the idea there. The lines have fallen for me. The, the, the stick that God drew and says, this is yours. I want you to have this. He's like, it's a beautiful inheritance. It's what God has given to me and it's beautiful. David looks at the circumstances of his, of his life and he's totally a word that is so elusive for many, content. He's genuinely content with the lot God has allotted to him. And it's not because his circumstances are great, but it's because he grasps that the one, and this is important to Psalm 16, he grasps that the one who ordains his life is simultaneously the one who sustains him through what he's ordained. Do you see the connection that's going on there? So he's over here going, God has ordained my lot, he's ordered my lines, my times are in his hand, and oh, by the way, the allotment he's chosen to give to me, he's going to be the one who sustains me in the very thing that he's called me, that he's called me to do. It's sort of that connection of there's going to be things in my life that are going to be hard, there's going to be things in my life that are good, things in my life that are difficult, things in my life that are blessing, but whatever might come to pass, we sing it on Sundays, the Lord will hold me fast. Why? Because he's my sustenance. And he's, he's giving things to me that, yes, I can't handle that time so that I will run to him because he's my sustenance. And that is how God is going to be glorified in my life. And if the Lord is the one who's ordering the path of your life, then the natural overflow is going to be just one of worship, I think. That's what he's driving at there in verse 7. He says, I bless the Lord. Like when, when, the, when the thought lands in your life that the days of my life, I'm 38 years old, from, out, from conception to 38 years old to right now, to begin to go, go back and go, man, in all the good and all the bad, God is perfectly, sovereignly in control of every single day, ordering my days, allotting to me the goods and the bads, but all along the way, not on a single second did he fail in his sustaining work as Yahweh. When that little nugget begins to worm its way into your brain at night and you're laying on the pillow, man, that's going to evoke some worship from you. And I think that's what's going on here because you see there is great hope when that reality seizes your heart because some of us have had hard days ordained for us. We've had hard days ordained in our marriage. We've had hard days ordained for our parenting. We've had hard days ordained for our children. We've had hard days ordained in our families, in our friendships, whatever it might be. But the good news is that the mighty one, El, who ordains your lot is the one who will sustain you through to the end. And David's over here going, man, I bless the Lord. The Matt Redman song, bless the Lord, oh my soul. Oh, I like, right, that's, just the, that's what's being evoked out of him right now. It's just worship. He's ordered my days, so I'm going to seek him. He's the one who gives me counsel, right? I think that's just, again, it's just, Psalm 16 is very logical, I guess, in its progression, you could say. 
where he's like, what? He's the one who sustains me and he orders my days? Well, guess what? I'm going to go to him for counsel then because if he knows the order of my days, then he knows the order of my days and I need, I need to know what he has so I can be wise in what he's ordained for me. What he's ordered my days, so I'm going to seek his instruction day and night. I want my heart to be instructed. So I'm going to go to him because he's my sustainer. He, he's ordered my days, so I will declare because the Lord is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. See, see, that's what's so good when you begin to realize that the creator is your sustainer. When he's ordering hard stuff, hard days in your life, then you'll begin to be able to stand on that foundation and go, I will not be shaken. Why? Because the one who has said, I want you, Jonathan Davis, to walk this allotted path in life. These are the times in my hands that I've given to you to walk. Then I can go, God, I can't do this. And he's like, I know. Because I want you to rest on me in, as your sustenance. And then I can stand and go, he is sustaining me because he will hold me fast. He's faithful in everything. He's never once failed. I can genuinely say, because the Lord is at my right hand, I will not be shaken in this thing. Um, a perfect example of this, and, and this is in no way meant to be, to be embarrassing, but when I was studying this and, and, and today, sister, you were like a giant screen in, on, in, in the forefront of my mind solely because of what you said at the family meeting the other day. Where during our testimony time, Gail came up and just said, like, hey, like, we're just, like, this whole, like, adoption foster thing has just been not easy, to put it as lightly as I possibly can. Like, it's been hard. Like, things that I never, like, I'm just going to go out on a limb and assume if you could be in charge of ordering your days, you probably wouldn't have picked this path. I'm just guessing. But here's the sovereign Lord, El, the Yahweh, who's in covenant with us because he, by his grace, has called us in relation with him, the master saying, but these are your times or in my hands. And this is the path that I've ordered for you. And in the hardness of it all, what we can then turn around and do is like, God, this is hard. And he's like, I know. But I'm drawing you to myself. I want you to know more about me as the sustainer the faithful one who will hold you fast. And then what you can do is you're walking that road and crying a lot and you're grieving and things are hard and then there's those little wins. Your own words were, he is proven to be faithful as the sustainer in this path that he has allotted for my life. I will not be shaken. And that sort of puts some um, divine backbone into you, right? Not because we're so great, because he's just so stinking faithful. I can now walk the path just a little bit more clearly with a little bit more uprightness. Why? Because he's holding me fast, man. Like if he walks away, man, that's like my bones turn to jelly, man. I'm just getting all floppy and I'm spinning out of control. But because he's ordaining my days, he's sustaining me, he's holding me fast, he's being faithful, I will not be shaken. All right, you guys get it right there, okay? So now what he's going to do is he rolls into those last couple of verses, verses 9 through 11. Again, remember, he's talking about the path of life. Where's joy coming from? And do you see him now? Like he's, he's the, bub, the pot's been bubbling. And now it's about to blow because he's like, listen, when the Lord is your Lord, when Yahweh is your Adonai, when the covenant God is your master and you get and you're beginning to see that he's faithful to the end and he's ordering your days and his sustaining hand will never fall out, guess what? He's like, you are walking the path of full 
joy forevermore. He's like, you are on, on that path. You're going to start tasting that fullness of joy because joy isn't circumstantial. Joy isn't a person. Yeah? Happiness can be is circumstantial. Joy here, I think what David is saying is, listen, my heart's glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh, my body, I have hope. It dwells secure. Why? This is just the language of deep joy because my joy is in a person. It's not in my circumstances. It's God who makes known the path of life. And along the journey, we get his presence resulting in the fullness of joy. It's his sustaining right hand, which is the source of unshakable pleasures forevermore. Look at this. You should probably connect these, at least if your Bible's on one page, verse 11 and verse 8. I've set the Lord always before me because it is at my right hand I shall not be shaken. In the verse 11, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I think the right hand language is supposed to connect those and go the, the fullness of forever joy. It's the unshakable pleasures that begin to take fruit in your life because your joy is grounded in El, Yahweh, Adonai there, okay? And so uh, Tim Keller, a uh, brilliant guy, you know, once in your life, I don't know if you ever feel this way, just to be able to write one good sentence that just actually, you know, makes sense and impacts somebody. He seems to tweet one out like 10 every minute. Um, here's another one in regard to Psalm 16. He says, listen, if God is our greatest good, he says, if God is our greatest good, which he is, we get what cannot be lost. We get what cannot be lost. And we get what will only increase infinitely. We get what cannot be lost. And we get what will only increase infinitely. I mean, ain't no one going to overthrow God. And if God is our greatest good, if he's our sustainer, if he's our Yahweh, if he's our Adonai, guess what? You are not losing him. And he calls you and he's like, you, 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 can't, you can't lose that. And actually then what you get because you've got him, our greatest good, that joy, it's just going to only continue to increase, 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 increase. And as we'll see here in a couple of seconds, when he goes into verse 10, he's punching deep. This is resurrection language. Like what's going to happen when you die? Does joy just evaporate like a mist? No. It's just going to keep on increasing more and more and more infinitely increasing. See, when you look at verse 10, you get a glimpse of the reality of this great good we get from God increasing infinitely because David shows us where the joy-filled path of life ultimately leads. Paths lead somewhere, at least they're supposed to. And so the question you should be asking is, well, if this is all about the joy-filled path of life. Where is this path going? Answer verse 10. It's going to the hope of the resurrection that we have. You're not going to abandon my soul to Sheol. Death isn't the end of joy. Death is the entrance into internal, eternal, infinite, forever joy that is never going to end. You're not going to let your Holy One see corruption. You see, I think David was able to arrive at this point because he reasoned that if God had blessed him and kept him safe so far in this life, then God, who does not change, by the way, that's the James 1.17 language there, would undoubtedly keep him and bless him in the life to come. And what's so amazing about verse 10, 
It's the way you picked up on Shelby and the way you landed the plane, Mallory, is that men like Peter, carried along by the Spirit in Acts 2, men like Paul, carried along by the Spirit in Acts 13, go back to verses 8, 9, 10, and 11 and verbatim say, this is a clear prophecy of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, his soul was not abandoned to Sheol, nor did the Holy One of God see corruption. And when Jesus walked out of that grave on Easter Sunday, great King David's greater son fulfilled these words perfectly in a way that no one has or no one ever will. And I think what King David, if he could just come in and say, let's put a final thought on this, he would just say this, sisters, this is the reason why God's path of life can culminate in the fullness of joy forevermore because ultimately it culminates in a resurrected king. It culminates in a resurrected king. Like we're not going to get out to the end of this path and go joy forevermore because it was actually all about me, right? He's like, we're going to get to the end of that path and go, what? It's, it really was all about him. And he's going to say, come, enter into my joy. Enter into my rest. And then that joy that we got to know on this path of life is just going to go, just going to just be on an upward slicing curve graph just going forever, forever, increasing, increasing, increasing. It blows the mind because it's so elusive here, but it's not elusive when you're before the, the one who's the resurrected king. So, so I think that's my argument for um, the joy-filled path of life of what, he's, of what uh, King David is driving at here whenever you begin to crunch on um, what um, some of those deep, you know, gravity-laden questions of life is just, does my life supposed to have meaning? Does it have meaning? Can joy be attainable here? I think David, by the Spirit, would say, yeah, it, it most definitely can be um, because it's ultimately the path, the joy-filled path that leads us to know God more but ultimately leads us to that place where in our death or the day Jesus comes back, we will be able to see the fullness of joy forever in a person, Jesus, Jesus Christ there. So... Um, Pray and close out. Question, I don't know what you do after this, so. Yeah, I think um, we're pretty close to our time. Yeah. So we'll probably just pray and close out, but I mean, I'm sure Mr. Brown, if you want, if you have anything. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah, yeah, absolutely. Father, thank you for just uh, the hope of joy that we have found in, not circumstances, but found in a person. Thank you, Yahweh, that you are Adonai. Thank you, Lord, that you are the master. You're the creator. You have a care for us. Thank you that you do order our days. There's not one rogue nanosecond in any of our lives. Father, would that help us to say along with King David, because this sustaining God is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken in the midst of whatever may come to pass. God, I pray for my sisters that we would be joy-filled in this path of life because our joy is not again in circumstances, but ultimately in our living God. It's in your name, Lord God, we pray. Amen.